chapter 7 is where we will continue our reading. And I say that because we're going to need to go back to chapter 6 for a little bit and review some things that we didn't do last time. But my intention was that we would actually see the commands that God gives Noah in chapter 6, the fulfillment of those commands in his obedience in chapter 7. But uh, there are some things, again, that that need to be filled in and and gaps that need to be uh, uh, covered. And and I named uh, or titled this uh, message, Noah's Ark, Facts and Frictions. Uh, I know that sometimes people would write uh, Noah's Ark, Fact or Fiction. But in fact, we're going to look at facts and deal with some of the frictions that... uh, are caused because we are standing on the Word of God as truth, while much of the world does not believe in the truth of the Word of God. <laughs> so uh, it is a time for us to examine closely and clearly what God's Word says about these issues, and then realize that we have a tremendous foundation upon which to stand. And that's something that we're going to see today. And so in Genesis chapter 7, verses 1 through 6, it's just our reading of this so that we can see how God is, is, is um, showing favor upon Noah and his family. God is, is preparing then to uh, have Noah complete through obedience the things that he has commanded him to do. Uh, and the Lord said unto Noah, verse 1, <clears throat> Come thou and all thy house into the ark, For thee have I seen righteous before me in this generation. Of every clean beast thou shalt take to thee by sevens, the male and his female, and of beasts that are not clean by two, the male and his female, of fowls also of the air by sevens, the male and the female, to keep seed alive upon the face of all the earth. For yet seven days, and I will cause it to rain upon the earth forty days and forty nights, And every living substance that I have made will I destroy from off the face of the earth. And Noah did according unto all that the Lord commanded him. And Noah was 600 years old when the flood waters was upon the earth. When the flood of waters was upon the earth. Shall we pray? Father, we turn once again to your grace and mercy. We turn once again, Lord, to your truth and to your word. And we ask for the anointing and blessing of your Holy Spirit. Poured out upon us now, Lord, that we might understand by your wisdom and by your instruction the things that are of necessity to be known, to be understood and to be appropriated, received, and believed. We give thanks to you, Lord, because you are forever merciful and ever gracious. Your compassions, Lord, never fail. And that is because you are faithful always. And great is thy faithfulness. And so, Lord, we come now to you. Teach us, instruct us, 
fill us and renew us. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. In doing my research for this portion of our study in the book of Genesis, I became somewhat concerned as to the uh, reason and purpose behind the teaching or behind teaching a passage of Scripture that, that points us to the distant past and has stirred up a tremendous amount of controversy worldwide in practically every arena of academia, in theology and philosophy, in history and geolo- uh, geological science, uh, in, in anthropology, ancient and modern civilizations, and the like. But let's face it. There is so much happening in our day and time which should concern us greatly as to the prophetic future of the world and, and fulfillment of Bible prophecy. Consider the events taking place and have taken place in Egypt are taking place in the Middle East today, even now, as well as what is happening in Israel, just to name a few. And people wonder, you know, why aren't we focusing our attention on those things? Those are the things that are to come. Those are the things that we need to be ready for. And you've got us back in the ark. But as I pondered this dilemma, I immediately realized the foundational basis for our study as given to us by the Lord Jesus Christ himself, who declared this in the midst of his own teaching of future events. Matthew 24, verse 37. But as the days of Noah were, so shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. For as in the days that were before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered into the ark, and knew not until the flood came and took them all away, so shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. We are exactly where God wants us to be in his word because of the days and times in which we live. This is not taking two steps back. This is actually being exactly where we need to be in light of what we see coming, in light of what we see happening in our world today, and what we know has been promised in the Word of God through prophecy. We are dealing with the truth that God has given us to know, the truth that God has given us to understand, the truth that God has given us to appropriate, and the truth that God has given us to believe. And it brings to mind the question that is posed to Indiana Jones in his pursuit of sacred ancient relics, in particular one ancient relic. Someone said to him, now is the time to ask yourself the question, Mr. Jones. What do you believe? Well, now is the time to ask yourself the question, people. What do you believe? What do you believe? Folks, are we going to believe all of God's word from Genesis to Revelation? Or are we going to compromise because the cynics of the world do not accept the word of God and the existence of the supernatural power of an absolute and almighty God? That's the question we need to answer today. What do we believe? Are we going to believe all of God's word? 
Or are we going to compromise because too many people say, well, it's really not true. And not just cynics that are in the world. Not the atheists or the agnostics or, or the evolutionary uh, uh, atheists, uh, scientists and all. There are people in the church that don't believe what the Bible teaches. You see, there are many that, uh, who would dismiss this account of Noah and the building of the ark and uh, any other biblical story in the first 11 chapters of Genesis for that matter because they are convinced that the tale of Noah and his ark is mere mythology. And to be sure, they believe it's quite impossible for a story like this to have occurred or to have happened. These cynics ask questions like, do you know how many species of animals there are? Uh, They would say, well, there's millions and millions and millions of them. There is no way these or even a small portion of them could be crammed into one ark, no matter how big it is. And then to be fed and cared for up to a year while the waters receded? No way. No way. That just can't happen. You're believing a fairy tale. It's just a myth. But is it impossible? I'm here to say that it isn't impossible. It is not impossible. Certainly I can say it's not impossible because with God nothing is impossible. And we as Christians believe that. But I'm here to say it isn't impossible and if people would do even a little bit of investigation, they would have to agree in this assessment. It is not impossible. One thing for us as Christians, though, we are committed to the truthfulness of the account. Not only because we've checked things out. That's why we study God's word as we do here, week in and week out. But we are committed to the truthfulness of this account because Jesus taught it to be so. Jesus taught it to be so. I mean, let's face it, would would he say these things... About, as in the days of Noah, so shall the coming of the Son of Man be. Would he say these things if it weren't true? And then suffer as he did and go to the cross as he did based upon falsehood? Would he do that? Based upon what the world would say is lies? Jesus said it very clearly. Every time Jesus quoted from the book of Genesis, he was saying it's true. Now, there are two foundational verses for us to stand upon as we begin today. These are the foundational verses that we are standing upon today. They are the words of Jesus Christ to us. One of them refers to his, uh, his second coming, as it were, but, uh, but actually, nonetheless, it's still a truth that we need to consider. It's what he says in John 14, verse 2. When he says, in my father's house are many mansions. But notice what he says after that. He says, if it were not so, I would have told you. God's going to tell us the truth. Christ is going to tell us the truth. Jesus is going to speak truth to us. So he says, if it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. But then the second foundational verse excuse me, upon which we stand today, is John 18, verse 37. 
At this time, Jesus is standing before Pontius Pilate. He has been arrested, accused of blasphemy. He's been beaten. He's been mistreated. But he stands before Pontius Pilate, and Pontius Pilate says to him, Art thou a king then? And Jesus answered, listen to his words. Before he goes to the cross, listen to his words. Thou sayest that I am a king. To this end was I born. And notice, and for this cause came I into the world, that I should bear witness unto the truth. This is what we're standing on. That Jesus himself said, I came into the world that I should bear witness to the truth. Everything Jesus said is true. And if he refers to Noah, it's true. If he refers to the beginning of days as the book of Genesis teaches, as far as the beginning of all things, it's true. If he refers as he does in the Gospels, to marriage as being that between a male and a female, guess what? It's true. Jesus said, I came into the world that I should bear witness unto the truth. This is the cause that I came in. It's all about his truth. Everyone, he goes on to say, everyone that is of the truth heareth my voice. Now, I bring this up because it is sad that this battle for truth, and we've been dealing with this for a year now, when we started our studies in Genesis a year ago, we've been dealing with a battle for truth. And it's sad that this battle for truth extends beyond the secular field and actually back into the church as well. A few years ago, not too many years ago, there was a study Bible that was published It was called the Renovare Spiritual Formation Bible. Renovare is not not really meant to be Spanish, and it's not a Spanish study Bible. But they used the word Renovare because it was based on the Latin word for renewal. And so this Renovare Spiritual Formation Bible was published. It was edited by someone who was actually a very new age kind of person named Richard Foster and Dallas Willard, and Eugene Peterson, if you recognize that name. Eugene Peterson is the, is the one who paraphrased uh, a book called The Message, it's supposed to be a, uh, considered like a translation, but it's not much of one. Now, I, I wouldn't uh, encourage you or, or even recommend it to you. It's called The Message. You've probably heard about it. Well, anyway, the explanatory notes in the Renovare Study Bible, the explanatory notes deny, listen, deny the divine authorship of much of Scripture. And it claims that Genesis chapters 1 through 11 is neither historic nor scientific. And that the entire book of Genesis is merely a collection of myths. And let me quote from the explanatory notes. And I quote, Genesis began, listen carefully, Genesis began as an oral tradition of narrative stories passed down from generation to generation. These stories gradually took on theological meaning, 
Over time, they were written down and collected together, speaking of chapters 12 through 50. And a prologue, Genesis chapters 1 through 11, was added. So they're saying that Genesis 1 through 11 was just something added to all of this, borrowing from other creation accounts. They're saying that the Bible borrowed from other creation accounts. I think I've referred to it this way. What came first, the chicken or the egg? Right? Okay, so you understand what I mean by that. God's word came first. And whatever accounts came after his word, they borrowed it from the word of God, not the other way around. But let me go back here to where this... These explanatory notes are. Borrowing from other creation accounts, stories with parallels to ancient Near East religious narrative and mythology were reshaped with monotheistic intent. In other words, all of these things, uh, this mythology was reshaped so that that, uh, there would be then a a one God uh, theological concept. And these strands of varied materials were gathered and edited into the written text. So this is their explanation as to how Genesis came about. Not that God gave this to Moses, but that man took all these stories that were being spread around by people and then collected it and said, well, this is Genesis. And it can be believed in some places and other places. It's just myth. You got the picture. That's a study Bible. Sold in Christian bookstores. And my only consideration in all of this is what wickedness for Christian scholars, quote unquote, to unite with skeptics to declare that Genesis, which is foundational to the Bible, is just an edited compilation of mythology and folk tales. I have read a list of the people who have who have contributed to this particular study Bible, and it amazes me that they would, get, they would lend their names to this kind of theology. It amazes me, it astounds me. Because you would be saying by putting your name on that, that you don't believe that all of Genesis is true as we see it or read it today and as we've been studying it for the last year and a month. So if Genesis is not literally inspired of God, then how can we have confidence in any other part of the Bible? This is another argument that we've been standing upon since our study of the book, of the beginnings of our study of the book of Genesis. If, if, if Genesis isn't inspired, then how can we believe everything else? If we believe, listen folks, if we believe Genesis 1 verse 1, In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. If we believe that, then we can believe John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. If we can believe Genesis 1.1, we can believe John 3.16. And that is the full understanding of what we are trying to do in our study of the book of Genesis in this manner. Because you see, Paul said in 2 Timothy chapter 3.16, all scripture... All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. But if any part of God's word is mythology, then guess what? It isn't profitable. 
But Paul says it's all inspired, therefore it's all truth. Therefore, when Jesus mentions Noah or he mentions anything in the book of Genesis, then you can be sure that Genesis is true. Have I made the point clear? Are you all with me? Are you falling asleep? Please don't. And so there are two battlefronts that we have to deal with. The, battle, the, the battlefront of secularism and, and of uh, evolutionary atheism. And the battlefront of liberal uh, theology. So-called Christian theology. But it's liberal and it's not very Christian. Those are the two battlefronts. But that's okay. Those are the things we have to deal with, but it's okay. You know why it's okay? Because we have the truth on our side. We have the truth on our side because Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Any man, and I should say no man, cometh unto the Father except or by, but by me. We have the truth on our side because we have Jesus on our side. You agree with me? Okay, let me know that you're here, please. I don't want to expend all this energy, you know, if, we, if we're just not on the same page. This is, this is significantly important for me to know that you understand and that you're excited about it because you know what? It's exciting to know Jesus. All right. So let's consider the Ark of Noah. Let's consider the Ark of Noah. Let's consider the Ark of Noah. Do we need some help up there? Okay, don't start, this, don't start it yet, okay? It's been one of those days. Okay. Well, first of all, we have to get beyond. We have to get beyond the perceptions and the conceptions of many who have possibly, with, with best intentions, wanted to give us an idea of what Noah's Ark looked like. So this is a very important thing for us to understand. We need to get beyond the perceptions and the conceptions of many. So, are we almost ready? Almost. It's okay to have fun in church, isn't it? Sorry. You'll notice I'm cool. I'm calm, collected. (laughs) Noah's Ark. Perceptions, conceptions, depictions, ideas, pictures, illustrations. They're on their way. Would you say that Noah's Ark looked like this? Can you imagine that's all I was waiting for? Would you say that Noah's Ark looked like this? Look at poor Noah. I don't know where he got that net, but he was really upset and probably regretting the fact that he put woodpeckers on the ark. And there's our giraffes. There are always the giraffes there. Now, here's, here's an artist's rendering that, uh, that shows a pretty picture. The next one. It's a pretty picture of a houseboat. Come. There it is. Well, that's another... Perception, another idea. It's very pretty. Got a got a little rainbow up there. You got some birds flying. 
You got animals. I don't know. You know, when you look at this picture real close up, and it's hard to see uh, because of the lights, but if you really look at the animals, they're all a little worried. I don't know why. Maybe it's because Noah's trying to bail out from the top. But anyway, so that's another conception or idea that some people have. Now, in this picture, the next picture, uh, the animals are bigger than the boat. And, and you'll notice, I mean, really, I mean, it's just, uh, we're, and that's all the animals that came with Noah. And Noah just, you know, he's really embracing those pigs there. But anyway, um, do, you, do you, get a, you get some idea now of where we go when we paint pictures like this? We're, we're actually saying, listen, Noah's Ark is really just a kid's story. And they, it's, they can learn a lot of neat little things about, about uh, you know, the animals and, and, and God's grace and favor and all. Uh, but it's still just a kid's story for Sunday school. Do you understand that? I mean, some people think that's all it is. So when we continue to keep this perception or this conception about us, then we don't really understand the truth. So... Seriously, now, there are renderings that seek to give us a close-to-accurate depiction of the ark. For instance, there is this particular uh, uh, model that was made. It's the next slide. Uh, this, this was actually, it's, 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 if I'm not mistaken, I believe it's in the Netherlands, in Holland. Uh, but it is uh, built close to the specifications given in the scriptures. Not exactly, and of course, you know, whether it had these rounded corners and this, this uh, uh, plank here in the front or whatever, uh, you know, that's just, again, a, a, an artist or a, a model maker's uh, uh, perception. But nonetheless, it, it, has, it gives us a little bit of a clearer picture of the size and scope of the ark. Uh, of course, the deck above uh, has real windows, and they're modern windows, so I know that Noah didn't have those. But uh, at least it gives us some idea of the size Now, uh, the next slide comes from Answers in Genesis. Uh, This is Ken Ham's group. And uh, they have a, as a matter of fact, they have a a creation museum outside of Cincinnati, I believe. And uh, uh, they are preparing, this is a model, by the way, of of Noah's Ark, that they are actually making uh, to be part of their museum. And I mean almost full size. I think that's the idea, uh, for, for people to see the immensity of what it looks like to, to see uh, what Noah's Ark would have been like after 100 years of construction. And so you notice the scaffolding, you notice the ramps, all important because they have to go into that door. Uh, the question as to whether the door was there or in the middle or, or in the back, whatever, you know, that's, again, that's not told to us in Scripture, so we just, we're just kind of adding those particular thoughts, that big thing up in the front, because that's the front of the board, actually. Uh, we're not sure about that, but, it, but uh, they have their reasons for putting all of that. Now, uh, then uh, there's an, another view. This is uh, the same uh, rendering, but it is a uh, nighttime view of Noah and his sons working overtime on uh, the ark. And it's an interesting picture because you'll notice there's only four men there. That's Noah and his sons. There are only four that built this ark. And uh, you'll notice 
God had to have given, and we're going to talk about this in a moment, but God had to have given not only, uh, you know, the plans, but the, the, the wisdom and the wherewithal so that <clears throat> you know, Noah could do a project of this sort at a time when, you know, you needed hundreds, if not uh, thousands of people working on a project like this. Those are the four. God was going to bring judgment upon everybody else. So you get then a, a little bit of a picture there. And then lastly, uh, another depiction of the ark, uh, this time uh, settled on Mount Ararat. Uh, I don't think there was uh, that uh, the snow was there quite yet. But this is, a, I think, an even better depiction of the shape of the ark as well as of the windows that were to be uh, a cubit above the, the ship itself and all the way the length of it. So that's a, that's a pretty good depiction. Again, the snow probably wouldn't have been there when it settled because, you know, the water was receding still and eventually uh, the climate change would take place and, and the, with all the mountains formed and all and the levels of, of, uh, of uh, geological and uh, meteorological uh, settings for the, the earth that once the, the waters receded completely, then the snows would come. So this is, this is kind of giving you an idea of where it landed, but uh, that's what it is today. Noah's Ark uh, is still there. We'll talk about this at another time. But uh, there are a lot of people that uh, seek to uh, bring more of a revealing to what they are seeing in overhead uh, aerial uh, photographs and whatnot. Again, we'll talk about all of that in the search for Noah's Ark. But this just gives you an, uh, an idea that it isn't just a Sunday school story. It isn't just something for us to kind of draw a big round boat and put a bunch of animals in there and some guy, you know, trying to take care of the animals or the woodpeckers or whatever. It is a real story about a real event that God said needed to happen because man became desperately, extremely wicked and God was judging the world and all that was in it except for the eight that he would save in the ark. Going back to Genesis chapter 7, verses 1 through 5, it says, And the Lord said unto Noah, Come thou and all thy house into the ark. And we have to see in that particular verse the invitation that God is giving. Come, thou and all thy house in the ark. For thee have I seen righteous before me in this generation. <clears throat> Remember that Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. The righteousness was God having given Noah the righteousness because of his faith in God and his trust in God. Of every clean beast thou shalt take to thee by sevens, the male and his female. Of the beasts that are not clean by two, the male and his female. Of fowls also of the air by sevens, the male and the female. To keep seed alive upon the face of all the earth. For yet seven days, and I will cause it to rain upon the earth forty days and forty nights. There was one week's time for Noah to enter into the ark with all the animals. And he says, And every living substance that I have made will I destroy from off the face of the earth. And Noah did according unto all that the Lord commanded him. I want to continue to emphasize 
the obedience of Noah. But before we start dealing with the number of animals and the kinds that went into the ark, and by the way, when cynics talk about the number of species uh, that would not fit into the ark uh, as one of their uh, arguments against Noah's ark, uh, we need to be specific with what God said. God said to bring in the kinds. Kinds and species are different. Again, we'll have to deal with that, but in the next study we're going to do that. But before we go into all of that, we need to review a little bit about the ark itself and expand our understanding of its size and of its scope. The Lord God had commanded Noah to build an ark, and it was to be made of gopher wood. And that's not in case you think that God was saying, listen, uh, Noah, I want you to build an ark, and I want you to go for wood. No, that's not what he said. Just trying to see if you're awake. No, it it was a specific kind of wood, and uh, with pitch to be added inside and out for the sake of making the ark waterproof. We're going to talk about these specifically. But the verses of Scripture that we want to look at is is chapter 6, verses 14 and 15. Chapter 6, verses 14 and 15. Make thee an ark of gopher wood. Room shalt thou make in the ark, and shalt pitch it within and without with pitch. So this pitch was something that was applied to the ark, inside and out. No gaps left anywhere, because if you leave a gap, then essentially the ship would not be, or the, the box would not be waterproof. But there's more specific uh, symbolism in in this pitch. We'll get to it later. And then it says, And this is the fashion which thou shalt make it of. The length of the ark shall be 300 cubits, the breadth of it 50 cubits, and the height of it 30 cubits. So the dimensions are given by God. These are specific dimensions. And, And very general dimensions, but specific nonetheless. Length, breadth, and height. So let's work our way backwards in these two verses by looking at the size of the ark first. The Lord instructed Noah to build a barge-like structure. Now those of you who are a little familiar with ships on the sea or, in, uh, for example, on the Mississippi River, uh, there are boats, there are ships, and there are barges. Boats and ships have certain uh, uh, structures to them, uh, physical structures that would allow these boats or ships to be navigated, to be uh, led or drawn or, or, or uh, engine-powered in some way. A barge is, is really just a, a large plank that carries stuff and is either dragged or it's pushed. So that, that just gives you a, a basic understanding of, of a barge. So the Lord is instructing Noah to build this barge-like structure called an ark, in the, in the Hebrew, it is the word teba or tebat, and uh, it's only used here and in Exodus, uh, the early uh, chapters of Exodus, where Moses is placed in, a, in an ark of bulrushes by his mother to protect him from uh, uh, Pharaoh's uh, people who are going out and, and killing uh, the male children. And uh, Moses is placed on the, the river, Nile River, and he really just is led by God. Again, an ark is not something that that uh, can be navigated. It's something that God navigates. And the ark ends up in uh, in Pharaoh. And uh, Pharaoh's daughter takes Moses and raises him in, uh, and we know the story, raises him in the courts of Pharaoh. Anyway, that's the other time when the, the word ark, teba, is used. 
the Ark of the Covenant is a different word. But we are going to deal with that later. But uh, he's told to build this ark in order to preserve both human and terrestrial animal life on the earth by saving occupants of the ark from destruction in the imminent flood. So Noah knows there's a flood coming. God is going to judge the world. This is why God tells him, build this ark. It was to be designed for capacity and floating stability. And it would be, according to the best average estimate of a cubit, which we consider to be about 18 inches from the tip of a man's hand down to the point of the elbow, uh, it was 450 feet long, it was 75 feet wide, and it was 45 feet high, using that measurement of 18 inches. So it measured then about a, a, a one and a half times the length of a football field. Therefore, a, a football field and a half would be the length of the ark, and uh, it wasn't actually until uh, 1858 that a boat bigger than the ark was built. There were no boats or ships bigger than the ark until 1858, and the boat that was built then was uh, built to be about 600 feet in length. So for the longest time, Noah's ark had the uh, uh, world record, you know, for the length of a boat, the size of a boat. Based on simulated tests in water, a box-like structure of the ark's dimensions is exceedingly stable and and almost impossible to capsize. Now, whatever our ideas uh, are about the carrying capacity of the ark, we have to come to the obvious assumption that the design came from the Lord himself. The design came from the Lord himself. For how would Noah or anyone else at that time know how to build such a large, seaworthy craft except by God's revelation. In the next couple of weeks, I'm going to be showing you some slides that deal with what people, uh, you know, what scientists and theologians, uh, creation and evolutionary, uh, believe the world was like at one time before a worldwide flood did take place. And the, the structure of the land was like one land mass and one large sea mass. Uh, and so we'll, we'll, uh, we'll deal with that later. But I'm, I'm mentioning this because, for the most part, the people living during the days of Noah, and there was quite a number on that land mass, uh, didn't really do anything on the sea. We have no... Uh, we have nothing in the scriptures to say that uh, all of a sudden there were a number of people who built ships and, and went out to discover uh, America, and the, you know, because there wasn't an America. There wasn't even a, uh, any kind of country shaped in the form of America. It was just one land, long landmass. So all of a sudden we have Noah building a large box, a very large box. And if people came around and asking him, you know, what are you doing? Well, I, I'm... Uh, I'm building an ark. The Lord God has commanded me to build this ark because judgment is coming. And those who are in the ark are going to be saved, but those who are not in the ark are going to realize that there's a lot of water going to be on this, uh, on this earth. The water is going to come up from the, uh, the ground, and, and there's going to be rain for 40 days and 40 nights. And you need to get yourself ready, and we'll make some room for you if you'd like. No, I think you're a little crazy. Because where are you going to put this big boat and how are you going to transport this boat? So you have to start thinking about where did this wood come from? 
There had to be some kind of a forest of cypress trees. We'll talk about it in a minute. Gopher wood, cypress trees, maybe even evergreens because shipbuilders, uh, you know, used evergreen at, at one time to make very strong and sturdy ships. So all of this was taking place, but it had to be by God's revelation. God had to give Noah the wisdom to do these things because it was just him and his three sons. And to do it over a period of a long time, and we're talking about a hundred years. And he needed all that time. How are you going to place all of these planks, one upon the other? How are you going to cement them together? How are you going to put the pitch over them all and cover them inside and out? This was not a rushed project. So please understand that the Lord is so much involved in this that David himself in Psalm 25 verse 14 said, The secret of the Lord is with them that fear him, and he will show them his covenant. Noah walked with God, and when a person walks with God as Noah did, he speaks to them through his word and tells them what they need to know and what they need to do. So we know that Noah had a personal relationship with God, that God was with him every day, that Noah walked with God, that Noah trusted God, that Noah listened to God, that God would speak to him. And I would say in some of the larger aspects of building a ship this size, God helped him with it. But Noah was more than a servant of the Lord. Noah was more than a servant of the Lord. Noah was also a friend of God. Jesus himself makes something clear to us before he goes to the cross. He makes something clear to his disciples and to us when he says in John 15, verses 14 and 15, You are my friends if you do whatsoever I command you. Henceforth I call you not servants, for the servant knoweth not what his Lord doeth. But I have called you friends, for all things that I have heard of my Father I have made known unto you. Jesus has spoken all these things to his disciples. His disciples should have known what was going to happen. Three times, at least that we know, three times Jesus told his disciples, I'm going to be arrested, I'm going to be taken to a cross, they're going to kill me, and then on the third day, I'm going to rise again. The first time they heard it, they didn't understand him. The next couple of times, they began to be curious as to what Jesus was saying. The third time, actually, they just got sad. They, didn't, they really didn't understand him. Yet he still said, but I've told you all of these things because you're my friends. They walked with Jesus for three and a half years. So the Lord had prepared Noah for what was to come. God's call to Noah was one of the most difficult calls ever issued a person. God had a great mission for Noah to carry out, but Noah would have to trust the Lord completely and fully. There's two things about that. And notice the the order of these two things. First of all, Noah would have to believe God's word explicitly. Noah would have to believe God's word explicitly. Exactly, in, in other words, accept exactly what God had said. Noah would have to believe God's word. Secondly, Noah would have to obey God's word, doing every single thing that God said. Do you see the progression? You believe God, and then you obey God. We see the same pattern in the life of Noah. Noah believed God. When God commanded him to build an ark, Noah did it all according to what God had commanded. We believe God, and then we obey God. Simply stated, Noah would have 
would have to cast himself wholly and totally upon God and his word. But folks, aren't we supposed to do that too? Aren't we supposed to put ourselves totally and wholly upon God and his word? If Noah did what God said, the world would think him strange. Listen, when we do the things that God tells us to do, the world thinks we're strange. The world thinks it's strange when we come to them to tell them about Jesus Christ. They don't understand. I can tell you this, 40 years ago, 40 years ago, uh, we would go out and, and, and take the, the gospel to college campuses and, and, and uh, the streets of the city or down at the bridge and wherever it was that we went. We would tell people about Jesus. And nine times out of ten, most people either had been in church, had been uh, grow, uh, uh, had uh, grown up in church or whatever, but, but very few never had been in a church, if any. There was always, everybody had some tie to church or family that was in church or they'd heard the gospel. They knew about Jesus. So that's the way it was 40 years ago. But think about this. A generation later, today, when you go out to do these same things and take the word of God to campuses and to to the streets and, and to various places around, you start talking about Jesus, they think you're crazy. And you ask them, I said, Do you go to, have you ever been in church? I've never been inside a church. There are, more today, there are more people today of this new generation that have never been inside a church than those of 40 years ago who had been and still needed to know Christ. How much greater is the challenge today for the people that, don't, you know, all they've ever grown up with is survival of the fittest. They've grown up with evolution. They've grown up with all of these thoughts that have taken them so far away from the truth of God. We have something they need. Folks, don't stop telling people about Jesus Christ. But let me just warn you that when you do tell them about Christ, they're going to consider you nuts. The world thinks it's strange. So it does, it, it does what it only thinks it can do. It ridicules and it mocks. Christianity today is more ridiculed and mocked than it's ever been, even in our own country. And, and the world just wouldn't understand. If, 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 if they were around Noah today, they wouldn't understand his behavior and why he was so fanatical about God and so against the pleasures and things of the world. In other words, they would consider him fanatical. You know what? He was passionate for God. He was passionate for the truth of God. He was passionate to do everything that God commanded him to do. There's nothing wrong with that. But the world wonders, why are you doing that with God when you have all the pleasures of the world to enjoy? And Noah wouldn't enjoy them. Why? Because he realized that the people that were going to be judged were living in their own lusts and in their own pleasures and far from God. So please understand that Noah would have very few if, uh, friends, if any, except his own family. Sometimes that happens to Christians. Not so much here on this, uh, uh, in this country, but th- I'll tell you what, when you go to countries where, where Christianity is, is, you know, there's this attempt to suppress Christianity completely. All that a family has is themselves and others that are in Christ. And that's the way it was for Noah. As he would be ridiculed while building this massive box and preaching the coming judgment and righteousness of God. 
Because in 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 and 5, Peter himself talks about Noah. First of all, he talks about the angels when he says, For if God spared not the angels at sin, but cast them down to hell, and delivered them into chains of darkness, to be reserved unto judgment, and spared not the old world, but saved Noah, the eighth person, a preacher of righteousness, bringing in the flood upon the world of the ungodly, Uh, the conclusion to that whole thought would be in verse 9 when he says, well, if God spared not the angels and and, and didn't spare the old world, then the Lord does know how to deliver the godly out of temptations and to reserve the unjust unto the day of judgment to be punished. But there's some questions that we need to ask about Noah. Was Noah willing to pay the price? We've discovered that he was. But we have to ask a question about ourselves. Was Noah willing to pay the price? Are we willing to pay the price? Was he willing to give his life totally to God and obey and follow his word explicitly? Are we willing to give our lives totally to God and to obey and follow his word explicitly? Was Noah willing to do everything that God said? Are we willing to do do everything that God's word tells us? Was Noah willing to carry out every single command? Are we willing to carry out every single command that God gives us in his word? Now, God commanded Noah to do what? Verse 14, he says, Make thee an ark of gopher wood. Rooms shalt thou make in the ark, and shall pitch it within and without with pitch. Well, listen, I mentioned last time that gopher wood was probably the wood from the cypress tree. And again, add to that the evergreen as well. I've mentioned this already, that shipbuilders down through the ages used uh, the evergreen uh, for wood uh, because of its density and its strength. So we would have to consider then that wherever Noah was, there was enough gopher wood around. And we're talking about having to have a good, large size forest of gopher wood or cypress tree or uh, evergreen for him to have to begin to build that. Because there was only four men. And these planks had to be big. So the tree, by that time, remember... Some of these people had already lived 900 years. Noah was 600 years old. So these trees were pretty big. We know from the the earlier parts of the book of Genesis that there were already tools and craftsmen making tools for doing certain things. So Noah obviously had some tools that he could work with in bringing down these trees, making the planks, but building those, you know, with wisdom, not having to carry them all the way to the sea, but just doing them where he was. Which gives us an idea that, you know, that he's building this, this big boat out in, in, the, in the forest and people are saying, there's no water here. But the water was coming. So understand that, that um, all of this was, was, was taking place and, and he began to shape all of these planks and prepare them with pitch uh, to uh, put them together. Now rooms, he says, God says to him, rooms shalt thou make in the ark. An interesting phrase. Rooms shall thou make in the ark. Our first impression, of course, is always that uh, it has to be for the animals. And they were probably made of different sizes so that certain animals of different sizes would, would go in there. By the way, when we study this uh, uh, in the next couple of weeks, we need to realize that the average size of an animal on this earth, the average size of an animal on this earth is only the size of a sheep. Okay? That gives you an idea then that uh, we weren't filling the ark with the biggest animals we could find. We didn't have to. The smaller ones will do. But we'll talk about that later. So this box or chest 
that Noah was to build according to God's uh, uh, command was to contain rooms. Literally in the Hebrew, it's the word nests. But not only for the animals, also for people as well. And I continue to believe with all my heart that when you consider the size of the ark and the kinds of animals that were to be brought into the ark, that would later on when released would you know, begin to, to, to make all different other kinds or, or types of, 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 you know, in other words, you only need two dogs. But out of those two dogs in, in, their, in their DNA, they, they could actually come up with all of the variants of dogs. Well, again, I'm getting ahead of myself. The point is that you can put all the animals into the ark, in as, as many as numbered as are numbered in the scriptures as we read in chapter 7. And there would still be room for more than just eight people. There would still be room for more than just eight people. What is that telling us? It's telling us that while the judgment was imminent and sure to come because God said this is going to happen, there would always be room for anyone who would forsake the world and repent of their sins and enter into the ark. Now, of course, the foreknowledge of God enters in because God already knew the people had rejected him. But there was still the hope. There was still the opportunity. There was still... The room, if anyone wanted to come. God knew they would. But you see, as other, as often as God made it clear to the children of Judah that his judgment was surely to take place in the time of Jeremiah and the destruction of Jerusalem was a sure thing and the, and the, the, the scattering of the, of, the, of, the, of the children of Judah, actually not the scattering, but the, the uh, captivity of the children of Judah will be taken to Babylon and all of that. All of that was going to take place. But all through the book of Jeremiah, there are opportunities for repentance. But the people didn't take them. God knew that. But the opportunity was always there. The room was always there. And so, the Lord never stopped making a plea for people to repent and to return to Him. Because the Lord is truly merciful and compassionate to the very end. And so we see the significance then. Not just of of how God wanted to build this structure. As we said last time, it looks very familiar. It looks like a, a coffin. As a matter of fact, the word, you know, the, the gopher wood was, was, was used in ancient times to build coffins. And here's this big coffin. And it, and it suggests a symbolism. It suggests the need for us to die to self so that Christ would live in us. It suggests that we trust him entirely to lead us and guide us. There was no navigational uh, power on that, on that ark. God was going to control all of that. That's how God wants to control our lives. So we see the significance of the, of the ark and the shape of the ark and the size of the ark. But we also see the significance of the pitch, that, 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 uh, that substance that was to be placed inside and outside of the ark. It is significant that it was done inside and outside, that it was done within and without. <clears throat> because it speaks of atonement. Why? The very word pitch in the Hebrew is the word kofar or kofar, which means atonement. The same word for atonement. And we're dealing with atonement inside and out. And when we, speak, when, when, when we believe that Jesus Christ died for our sins and that he shed his blood for our forgiveness and that he uh, was placed in a, in a tomb and on three, day, three days later he, he rose again from the dead. When we believe that with all of our heart, we are sealed inside and out by God. 
We are sealed and we become His. We're no longer ourselves. We become His. And folks, this is what we need to understand about the atonement. The atonement affects us inside and out. What we believe and what we know to be true on the inside about God's Word and how we live our lives on the outside, everything changes. You cannot just have the inside changed and the outside not changed. And conversely, you cannot have the outside change and the inside not change. No, there was, there was a specific plan that God wanted to make it clear. When we are sealed by God, we are sealed inside and out. Now consider that pitch was, was a petroleum product. It was akin to tar and, and asphalt material, which was used to make objects watertight. But that's not the only reason why God uses that here. Because the pitch, the kofar, sealed the ark and made it secure from the destruction and judgment that was to fall upon the earth. And in this, the pitch is a type in, the, uh, in, in a picture of Christ. Because you see, the blood of Jesus Christ seals the believer against the destruction and judgment that every person has to face in the future. The blood of Jesus Christ seals the believer. Christ bore the judgment of sin for us. He has paid the atonement. He has paid the kofar. He has paid the sacrifice because he was the sacrifice for our sins. And when we believe in Jesus Christ, we are covered inside and out. The pitch inside and out in the ark is symbolic and significant to the complete work of Jesus Christ in every believer in every true believer. Leviticus 17, the Old Testament, verse 11 says, For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you upon the altar to make an atonement for your souls, for it is the blood that maketh an atonement for the soul. And Paul would come back later in the New Testament and write in Romans 5:11, And not only so, but we also joy in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom we have now received the atonement. We have received the atonement, the pitch. We've been atoned inside and out. It can't be just one or the other. When he changes the inside, we've, we sing a song from time to time that the Lord changes us from the inside out begins in our heart, then everything changes. We don't do what we did in the world. The pleasures of the world don't satisfy us anymore. The only thing that really satisfies us is the love of Christ. The only thing that truly, truly meets our every need is the love of God and the Word of God and the, and, and, and the fulfillment of God through Jesus Christ and the power of His Holy Spirit. It is the work of Jesus and the power of His blood. It is the work of the Spirit not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to His mercy He has saved us. That's the significance of why we're looking at the ark of Noah so closely. It affects us. It affects our eternal view. It affects our eternal life. And it affects our eternal destination. We all will live in eternity. 
It all depends on where we live. Will we live with Jesus or will we live separated from God for eternity? That's not living, by the way. That's living an eternal death to be separated from God. I would encourage you, God's word is true. Come to Jesus. Be saved. And know the joy of his salvation. And know the peace and the rest of his salvation. Don't live your life any longer in the restlessness of this world. Live in the peace of Jesus Christ. Because he can come at any moment now. We're just waiting to see Jesus. That's it. So a lot of things that can happen, and things are happening in the Middle East, and we're going to talk about that, I'm sure, at some time. What matters is what's in here right now, in your heart. Let's ask this question before we close. What was being demanded and asked of Noah by God? What was being demanded and asked of Noah by God? There are four answers to this. They all affect us too. First of all, God demanded and asked of Noah to believe the unbelievable. Believe the unbelievable. Noah, you build this ark, and I want it this big. Okay. He wasn't counting on his own abilities. God told him to do it. He believed the unbelievable. Folks, we need to believe the unbelievable. Does God still work miracles today? He sure does. He sure does. Does he, does he do them all the time for us? Not, well, you know, we don't oftentimes see it, but he did the greatest miracle. He changed us from what we were to what we are today. Secondly, God demanded and asked of Noah to do the incredible. He believed the unbelievable, and he did the incredible. We can do the same. There will be many times when the Lord would want us to do what the world would consider to be incredible. We can do it. Thirdly, The Lord demanded and asked of Noah to accept God's word at face value. Accept God's word. We might not understand it all. I've been reading it for almost 40 years. I don't understand it all. Still, I mean, there's some things that I continue to have to study and whatnot. But I believe it. I accept it at face value. I accept God's word. When the Bible tells tells me that God in six 24-hour days created the heavens and the earth and all that's in them. I believe that. When God told Noah to build the ark, I believe it. When God changes a life of wickedness into a life of righteousness, I believe it. Because I've seen it. And I've experienced it. Lastly, this is a long one. 
to obey God. God demanded and asked of, of Noah to obey God by standing up for God and his word and by standing against the ridicule and mockery of the world. God demanded that he obey him, stand upon his word, and stand against the ridicule and mockery of the world. We have to do that more and more this, these days in which we live. Do you know that we can do it? We can do that. Not by our power, not by our might. We do it because Paul tells us in, in Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Christ, which strengthens me. I can do all things. This Christ who strengthens us to believe the unbelievable, to do the incredible, to accept the word of God in, at face value, and to stand up for his word and against the ridicule of this world. We can do these things because of his spirit. You ready to believe him? Let's pray. Well, Father, once again, we thank you for your wonderful wisdom and mercy and grace by giving us this opportunity, Lord, to be good Bereans, to search your scriptures daily, to see that all these things are so.